In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so it's Memorial Day, Memorial Day weekend, and anyone who comes to church on that weekend should get a door prize. <laughs> I thought about a toaster. I just didn't know how to explain that expense to Scott when he got back. <laughs> you ought to get something. And, and I wanted to give you at least a cute, funny, self-deprecating, sweet story to start my sermon with this morning. But it came up empty, so we're just going to have to do it straight today. <laughs> the gospel passage presented for us today is a part of John's gospel, which is known as the final discourse of Jesus. It's a sort of summary of all things important, and it's chock full. Remembered as John tells it, the setting for this, this discourse was tense and filled with prescient sadness. For even the most emotionally blunted of Jesus' followers, it was now abundantly clear that the days ahead would not be easy, that everything they had held to be true and hopeful about Jesus was about to be tested. The way they had imagined the coming of God's realm on earth would be upended by violence and despair. Consequently, Jesus' words are notably tender to them, anticipating his followers' needs for coming for those coming days. And in our understanding of the largeness of Scripture, we also hear the words as comfort to us in coming millennia, words that would bring comfort to us as we try to follow Jesus, no matter how tentatively or ineffectively. In permanently memorialized words he spoke to these people he loved so much in the caring tone we might use for our own children don't let your hearts be heavy don't be troubled try not to be afraid this year the lesson falls as it often does on memorial day weekend a day which used to be called decoration day it was it is a day when the graves of Fallen members of our armed forces who never grew old are decorated with flags and flowers and wreaths. Though it kicks off summer, which is purportedly the less serious time of the year, there is about this weekend a well-earned solemnity despite being served up with a good-sized dose of jingoism. Pacifists and hawks alike mourn the loss of lives, most often young lives, of those willing to make the ultimate sacrifice as they perceived themselves to be following the worthiest of causes. So in the midst of enjoying our backyard burgers and waving flags, there is within this largely secular holiday a kind of civic religiosity that invites more thought from us. And I think that sort of deeper way of thinking about it is, happen, is helped by the happenstance of its falling on the weekend when we remember these really important last words of Jesus. Religion and state, as everyone knows, never go together, except when they do, which is all the time. <laughs> the demarcation line between 
spiritual and secular, though widely touted, is largely theoretical. Every moment we are spiritual beings. It's inherent in our creation. Our task is to live the tenets of faith as lovingly and passionately as we can without the burden of sectarianism, without insisting that all believe or practice just as we do. But make no mistake about it, at least in my opinion, our spirituality calls us to live in a particular way, politically, socially, and spiritually. A life that is committed to moral values that supersede the particulars of any faith even our own. So very, very briefly, here are three takeaway points that Jesus spoke to his tattered little band of followers near the end of his life. 2,000 years later, these emphatic words resonate for us, not only as Christians, but as citizens. The first thing he says is a slight variation of what he said so many times before about loving God. This time, he operationalizes the commandment. He tells them, and thereby tells us, what loving God looks like. Those who love me will keep my word, he says. Lest we forget, here's a sampling of some of his words. All top hits among folks like us but really hard to follow. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemy. Seek God and others before you seek and serve yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. To find your life, first you must lose your life. Let the one with no sin cast the first stone. You get it. I get it. We all get it. But that's not the issue. Living it is the issue. And it's never a fait accompli, but a lifetime of practice and work and prayer. The second thing that he leaves for them is truly extraordinary. In the vein of being comforting, he says that God will send an advocate, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. Now, it's pretty clear in Scripture that this was less the arrival of the Holy Spirit Remember that the second verse in the Bible refers to the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. So it's not so much the arrival of the Holy Spirit as it is a statement of the power of the Holy Spirit in the world. Jesus makes an outrageous claim. Listen what he says. Listen to the Holy Spirit, which will tell you everything, not just a bunch of stuff, but everything. That sounds ridiculous to me. And yet, I tell you, I believe it. I truly do. If we listen, the Holy Spirit will tell us everything. Now, I don't listen always. Probably in truth, I don't listen a lot. But in my heart of hearts, I know that if I do, the Spirit will tell me what I need to know. Maybe not what I want to know, but what I need to know. This, for me, is the essence of who God is. When I think about God, what immediately comes into my mind is the presence of this Spirit. 
so much more than an amorphous, mysterious, or ethereal entity. The Holy Spirit really gets into the nitty-gritty of our lives, and it can just irritate the daylights out of you. It's the still, quiet voice that pulls us toward loving more and doing more good. It tells us not to be jerks. It countermands, for example, such unquestioned and beloved truisms as business is business, or if you don't look out for yourself, nobody else will. Those premises work pretty well, I think, for the world, but we need to remember they're not the standard for living in a world where the Holy Spirit is at reign. The Holy Spirit tells us that Massive success strewn with the carnage of unbridled ambition is an empty, empty victory. The Holy Spirit tells us that while dealing with borders and immigration is really complicated, it's hard, that rules of common decency and goodness and generosity still beckon our higher angels. That's a Lincoln-esque way of saying Jesus really wants us to be kind to strangers and immigrants. Nobody has to be convinced, really, that putting people, let alone children, in cages is wrong. How we work that out is political, and I'll leave that to somebody else. Knowing that it is true, though, is about the Holy Spirit, and that's for all of us to know. It will tell us what we need to know about surviving episodes of loss and separation that just seem unbearable, utterly unbearable. The Holy Spirit bears the tiniest beam of light in the darkest of nights, enough to remind us that the weeping of darkness will someday give rise to the joy of morning. And interestingly, when our longings and our prayers are too deep, too expansive, or too sorrowful for words, the Holy Spirit will speak them for us. They will give voice to those things we can't even say. And finally, Jesus promised this group of cherished friends whom he was about to leave that he would leave with them his peace. It's always occurred to me that as they sat with him that night, if the disciples might have thought they might rather pass on his brand of peace, seeing as how peace Jesus style had landed him and them as well, as it turned out, in a lot of trouble. But in truth, that's the kind of peace he brokered, the kind which passes all understanding. I start every day using this little app on my iPhone called Headspace. It's a sort of meditation for dummies, a, a tool to help me find some peace. Nothing wrong with it. In fact, there's a lot good about it, good for mental health, for depression, all those things. And that kind of peace is far from the antithesis of what Jesus came to talk about but it's also far from the whole story. For Jesus, peace did not mean the absence of struggle, but the presence of love. Love stirs things up in a big hurry. 
it rarely opts for being objective or neutral. In fact, objectivity is greatly overrated. We are not called, I think, to be neutral, to be objective about everything. Jesus took sides, clearly, often taking the side of peace even when it created all sorts of opposition. A beloved son of the South, Walker Alexander Percy, put it better than anybody I've ever heard when he wrote, The peace of God, it is no peace, but strife enclosed in the sod. Yet, brothers, pray but for one thing, the marvelous peace of God. Important words these are, every one of them. Love as Jesus did, listen to the Holy Spirit, and seek a complicated peace that passes all our understanding. If we hear them, if we hear these words, really hear them again and take them anew into our hearts, it's still not too late to make the world a different place. In the name of God, Amen.